Hey, this is David Rosen from the Piecing It Together podcast, and you are listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks. Ivory Wave is an experimental horror short that unsettles an audience whilst asking them to empathise with sudden tragedy. Much of Ivory Wave appears to be dreamlike, suspended somewhere just outside the bounds of reality. The film asks the viewer to surrender themselves to the immersive story. The slight disorientation that is presented mirrors how one might feel when in a drug-induced state. Brilliantly, the film surrenders itself to its disorientation as the lead loses himself to grief and substance abuse. The music for the film, written for string quartet and bespoke modular electronics, was by award-winning composer and conductor Liana Priamani. In October 2021 for Talking Soundtracks via Zoom, I had the pleasure of talking to Liana at her studio in Santa Monica, California. We talked about Ivory Wave, her career to date, and her future musical plans. As well as hearing the interview, we will also play episodes from Ivory Wave and more works from his new voice in film music. Liana Piamani, welcome to Talking Soundtracks. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Tell us about Ivory Wave. Well, it's interesting. The film itself is an experimental horror film. The director, James Quinn, is, in my opinion, a genius. He is very committed to celluloid. So every movie that he makes is shot on Super 8, anything he can get his hands on. And then it's either he creates a 35 millimeter print or a 72 millimeter print. He edits on a big old fashioned bay and he's really great at it. And what I love about his movies is if the image itself is too much, which for me, a lot of horror movies can be, certainly, you can really appreciate his technique the way he moves the camera, the way he lines up a shot, the way he lights what's happening, the way he uses black and white, the way he uses color. And because it's he's filming everything on film, just he uses that texture to help tell the story. It's really quite remarkable. But with that, I'll say it's really dark. And another thing that I find interesting about James is he has fought with his own demons He's had some issues with his mental health even before COVID. And I think COVID just amped it up like it has for everyone. And I think one of the few silver linings in this 
whole COVID horrible situation that all of us find ourselves in is that it's really brought to the fore mental health issues and actually talking about them. And I don't want to say legitimizing, but people aren't blown off like they're weak or stupid or dismissed in any way because of that. Now we can actually talk about that, accept it, and then go from a place of trying to fix it, which I think is remarkable. And I'm thankful for that. And I know for James, everything that he's gone through and to come out of it the other side is impressive. And then to be a director and to create on the most difficult medium there is, it's not just getting out your cell phone and making a little movie. I mean, this is, it's a big deal to shoot on 35 millimeter or super eight or whatever it is and get it together. I also think a film like this is very interesting in this time because you can really relate to our own dreams and our nightmares and our own demons. When you see a film like this, although it's dark, it's not obtuse. We kind of understand the place where it's coming from because we've all had a little bit of that in our lives recently. So I think he did a remarkable job. We were just at the Nightmares Film Festival and he won a special award for innovation in horror film, which I thought was really great for him. What initially interested you to work on Ivy Wife? Um, I've worked with him in the past and he is really a great um, collaborator. He's so nice. I've never met a horror director or anybody in that genre who isn't the nicest person. The fans are amazing. People who work in that are incredible. So it's always fun. He really lets me do anything I want, which is nice. So I have free reign to be really creative and to take advantage of my training. First and foremost, I was a professional conductor and then I made a pivot probably about 10 years ago and started writing music, uh, which I something I never thought I would do. And then when I was getting my second master's degree at UCLA, I worked with a man named Paul Shihara, who in his own right is a spectacular composer, both a concert composer and film composer. And back in the day, he worked on something in the 80s called China Beach. I don't know if you guys ever got that. Some of you would remember the reason I bring it up is because that's when you had to write 40 minutes of music in a week, like everybody who works on a television, it was a CBS show, but he put pencil to paper. There was no computer yet every week, every week. He's really a spectacular composer. And he's the one that said, you really need to think about writing for film. And I thought, I could never do that. That's crazy. But then slowly but surely, I started getting interested in it, started doing more and more things. And so it was, that's kind of how that happened. So my classical training has really helped shape my film music voice. So the kind of score that Ivory Wave is, it's very akin to if your listeners have seen The Favorite and the scores of uh Yorgos Lanthimos. I don't know if anybody's noticed that music. I personally, they're it's not a composer. They're all what's called needle drops. He has the best taste, in my opinion, of music. I mean, I shouldn't say anything because I'm out of a job, right? But he, to me, is a genius. And I think the way he uses super legit, classical, modern music, Goodbye Dulina, Ferrari, all of these, you know, living composers that are just doing things in classical music, it's normal, but maybe for other people, it might feel a bit on the fringe, but it certainly is fascinating. So 
because of the way I was trained and the kind of music I conducted before I became a composer, my voice has always been towards that modernism and it seems to fit um, not only horror, but most of James's work. So it's just, it's a nice fit. I can see that in the music I've listened to, yes, it's a, it's a nice real mix of melodic and also the atonal stuff you do. How did you finally decide to score Ivy Wave with swing quartet and electronics? Well, um, most of my music is both my concert music and my film music is always with live instruments and electronics. I love uh, modular synthesis and I have a some other things in the studio here. But um, that's always been a part of my aesthetic. I studied at the CC Mix in Paris, which is Anakis's studio. Uh, so did Alexander Desplat, actually, although 20 years for me. So I've, I've always been interested in that um, kind of music concrete and that kind of Darmstadt, German, French, certainly Italian modernism with electronics and nothing like, you know, four to the floor with the beat. That was never me. It went the other way. So when it came to this, because the movie is just about one man and his reaction to the death of his wife, hence the nightmare starts for him. The movie didn't call for a big score. And I felt like a string quartet was intimate. And yet I could really, with a quartet, you have a range of not only octaves as to, you know, very high and very low, but you, it, it can also be very intimate. It can be very big. There's a lot of things, if you know how to write for that ensemble, that you can do that sound not only interesting, but they also sound kind of quasi-electronic. So with the electronics underneath, it's kind of unworldly. And the film is itself. It's caught between reality and a dream. of me of uh, the Twilight Zone, the Jerry Goldsmith Twilight Zone episodes. Could he, could he use a very similar style was a lot of, lot of the episodes. So I had, had, that, had, had that feeling right. about it. Right. Well, you know, 
Yeah, so Jerry, I think, studied at USC. I studied at USC. And, you know, there's still, and for classical composers who are listening to this or classically trained composers, like that's still in the water, right? Like, you know, if you write a tune, depending on what school you go to, they might kick you out. So, <laughs> you have to, so this is one of those things that it's, you're still in this Penderecki kind of Milton Babbitt, you have to kind of serialism, this kind of modernist thinking. Certainly I exaggerate, but a lot of things have changed, but that's the kind of thing, at least 10, 15 years ago when I was in school, that you, that you just day and night, that's all you were taught, that's all you listen to, that it's a very academic, which I love, but you know, that's not for everybody, but that's what comes out for me sometimes. So what are you going to do? How long did it actually take you to compose the score for Ivy Wave? Uh, that's interesting. I wrote it fairly quickly for me. It's a 15 minute through composed work. I wrote it so that it can also be played live to the film. I wrote it with that in mind, certainly. So it's almost like a concert work. Just kind of kill two birds with one stone with that. And it took me about, I don't know, three or four weeks to write it, which was great. And then when we decided to record it at Fox, which was during COVID, um, which was amazing, then I was like, oh, I have to write a score to this. Ha, huh, look what I did to make my life so complicated, uh, which I've never done. So I had to kind of go back and rebar and figure it out and um, create the score, which I, and so there, you know, there's a lot of modern notation, there's box notation and extended string techniques and all of these things. And I do love to write like that because it's shorthand and I could write every little note and make it super complicated. But when you just write four or five notes and you put a box around it and, and give directions and say, do this until, you know, bar 10, blah, blah. It just makes it so much more natural. And every time you it's performed, it sounds a little bit different because every player brings its personality. It's fun. And that's actually what I did just to save some time. And then we were able to go to Fox and to record that. So in that big room, we only had the quartet. My God, it sounds so beautiful. Damon Tedesco, who was my um, recording engineer, and he mixed and uh, mastered the soundtrack, did an absolutely spectacular job. He knows the room so well. We were towards the end of the day or, or the end of our session. We had gone through and rehearsed it and recorded bits and pieces and he was going to edit it all together. And I said, let's just do the whole thing and just play it. I won't conduct. You guys have played it enough. You have a click. Let's just see what happens. And so what you hear is that whole thing played to picture in one take. They just did it and it was spectacular. I'm really proud of, they're called the Lyris Quartet. They're a fantastic quartet here in Los Angeles and they play a lot of on the big uh, sessions here in town. They're A players and they just, they were so great. So um, I'm really proud of that. So it was just the one take you did, just the one and that was it? That was it. Now, don't get me wrong, like we had come in and we had rehearsed sections and we had recorded this, 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 this. And he was about to sit down to edit it. And I said, no, let's just, we have time. Just do one take, see what it's like. And it was spot on. It was just great. <laughs> James Horner would be proud. That's <laughs> the sort of thing he would do.
Now, as you said, you've recorded this score on the famous Fox Newman scoring stage. I'm jealous. <laughs> How did it feel entering that famous room for the first time? All that history, all those famous scores have been, you know, performed in that big room. How did it feel going into there for the first time? Right. Actually, and it's so interesting you say that because I had never been there. I've been to every other stage in town as a guest or some such thing, but I've never been there. And, you know, I knew it was going to be different because the parking spot right in front of the stage had my name on it. And I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. And just to walk in and having it be such an intimate score in that beautiful space, which is pretty big, it was it was really um, spectacular. I can't even describe it. It was great. Now let's go back to the beginning now. And uh, how had you first become interested in film music? Well, I've always enjoyed it, but I never thought about it per se. And then when Paul Shihara said that I should, you know, think about it, even before that, when I was conducting some big international workshop, blah, blah, with a composer named Peter Utbush, who again is a, you know, super modernist, ear calm, that kind of thing. And I was, we were conducting some, I was on the podium and we're going through something and I was conducting a kind of modern, I can't even remember what it was. And he took me aside after, and he's like, you know, the way you work with an orchestra, creating sound, doing different things, you really should think about composing. Wow, I didn't ever do that. Are you kidding me? And then I started to think about it and started to write. And it was so interesting because knowing so much of the repertoire, conducting Beethoven and Mozart and Strauss and Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff and blah, 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 just all the standard repertoire that one learns, including ballet and and including opera, I've done a lot of opera, middle period Verdi, Puccini, Bartok. It's so interesting that it was like somebody took a scrim and opened it. And then I saw for the first time the score. Oh, he put this in the horns and then it goes to the English horn because of the that, that, that. And I get that thing and the thing and look how he took that motive and did this and did and that and it all of a sudden it like clicked. So for me, coming from a place of, if I can say, real knowledge of how an orchestra works, just because I had done it before, that was my training. And I worked as both a, a, a conductor of ballet, but in the States, the companies here are mostly Balanchine companies. So Stravinsky, all of those Balanchine ballets. So the music is killer. It's awesome. So having that experience and then coming to the film world and putting that to picture. Well, I like to tell stories because I was telling stories through ballet. I was conducting wise, especially in the opera world and conducting tone poems because I love big, fat orchestral works. And I feel that that is, that is my sweet spot as a composer. That's where my true talent lies is writing orchestra music. How did you stop as a conductor? How did that come about? Um, I had it in my head. My aunt drove me to, I lived in the Central Valley in California, and she would drive to San Francisco every week to go to the opera on Sunday afternoons in San Francisco. I don't know if you're familiar with that opera house. It's spectacular. So I don't know, I must have been about seven. And she took me to see La Boheme. And Pavarotti was just there for a one-off. And I was like, wow, because his voice, and, and he was in his prime and I just remember thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to be that fat. But what's that guy doing? 
and I'll do that. And so that's how that happened. And I was already playing piano and doing the things one does as a child. And so it just kind of started. So I did conducted the high school orchestra and the city orchestra and blah, blah, blah. And uh, went to music school for that. And then just became an assistant conductor and then got bigger jobs. And, you know, I will say at the end, when I left, I don't conduct a lot. I conduct my own scores, certainly on the scoring stage, but as a rule, I don't really conduct anymore because this was right before people were taking women on the podium seriously. And it was just brutal. And I just thought, I'm married, I'm having a baby, like why am I doing this? After a while, it just isn't worth it. And also too, just to be with my family, like coming to my studio to write music from seven to four or whenever I get the chance to do it. And this is my office and my kind of nine to five. And then I turn back into a mommy pumpkin when you know my daughter gets home from school and then I'm a mom and do my thing. But I will say that it's been, I was so disillusioned with, especially in classical music. Oh my God, it's all, I mean, they're both bad, but classical music is definitely getting a lot better. But at the time it was hard. And so I'm so happy that I made the pivot to composition. As you know, probably know anyway, film music can be a male-dominated industry. Do you feel that you and your music has been given 
the respect it fully deserves at this point by fellow composers and also for music journalists. Right. Um, you know, look, it's it's interesting when journalists, you, John um, Berlingame from Variety, he's amazing. When people and David from the Goldsmith um, Odyssey, just all kinds of people. It's so interesting with uh, Jeff Bond. Um, he's wonderful. When people hear, and it doesn't matter, journalists, whatever, when people actually hear the music, they seem to really like it. But it's getting people to listen in the first place. So that's been hard. And I will say, coming from a classical music background for me, because I got a little bit of a late start, I'm a late bloomer compositionally, Classical music likes that. I recently won something called a, a Toulmin Commission, which is a national commission here in the States from the American Composers Orchestra and League of American Orchestras. So I was awarded a big commission to write an orchestral work, which is going to be premiered in Houston in February. And because of that, all of the sudden, my concert work, during COVID, I had nine premieres. Premieres! So it's so interesting that kind of opened the gates for me. I'm having a piece played by the Rochester Philharmonic, which is a very large orchestra here in this country. The Nashville Symphonies played my work. So slowly but surely, that has really been fantastic for me. But it's that same thing has not necessarily happened in the film world. I don't know. It's interesting. I still think there's a stigma about being a mom. Like they think, well, she's a mom, so maybe she's busy. And, you know, it's that. But I don't know about England, but I know in the States, there was a thing on Netflix and they were interviewing women who are very powerful from all over, Hillary Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, just about how the power and the workplace between men and women. And while it, the pay is getting to be almost the same, the fact that even that even comes out of my mouth, I can't even believe. You know, the problem then becomes then motherhood. It's motherhood that's the problem because you have to take the time off. It's you that it's the mom that's doing all of these things. They work from home. They've gone half time. So because of the way that it's set up, it's the mom that has to take all of that. And I think it's that mentality that is still prevalent. I, I think we're breaking it, but certainly, look, I've talked to, Many composers, film and concert, who've chosen not to have kids because they know they won't work or it will be very difficult to work. And because they look at people like me and others like me and they see it just makes it difficult. Who wouldn't love to work for Hans Zimmer? But why would Hans Zimmer hire somebody who works from seven to four, right? And why would you want to be away from your kid for 17 hours a day? Like, So there's a thing. I'm sure it's getting better. Um, at least I hope it's getting better. But the only thing I'm interested in is having people, having the opportunity to show people and have people listen to my music. That's the most important. So let's go back. Now, you said you were a conductor and somebody took you aside and said you should be doing composition and film music. When did you finally decide to get your first assignment in film music? And then what was your first assignment? Oh, my gosh. My first thing was a student film at USC. I was getting my, my doctorate there. As part of what happens with USC in the composition program, you have four majors. So composition, one of them was music theory, 20th century theory, film music, and opera. Those were my four. And so as part of that, I was able to take some classes 
in the film scoring program. And that was great. And because of that, the cinema school is right there. So I was able to score a bunch of student films. And that's kind of how that uh, worked. Did you choose the films you wanted to work on or was they assigned to you? You go and you, you know, it's just like you hustle. You just go and you, at the time, you know, you gave your CD or whatever it was or email links and blah, blah. And you just found out who the directors and the producers were and what was in production. And you just went like everyone else and pitched. And that's how that worked. And then somebody worked with you and then blah, blah, blah. How do you describe your actual musical style? Can you describe your musical style? You know, what's that 
Frank Zappa quote that's so famous, talking about music is like dancing about architecture. I mean, he's got a point. You know, it's difficult to say. I think my voice comes from the way I write a tune. Um, and what I mean by that is for your listeners, you know, when you hear John's melodies, he's been writing for a long time. And it doesn't matter if it's, if you're not familiar with a movie that he did in the early 70s or it's Close Encounters or it's whatever. And whatever it is, like sci-fi or thriller or drama or comedy, whatever, you can hear immediately that his tune without anything else, like that's who he is. And it's the way he uses the tessitura, lots of skips. And that is absolutely his voice, the way you could just tell by his melodies, number one. I think that's, uh, that's a trait of mine. You can always just, I write a certain kind of tune. I'm certainly not comparing myself with John Williams. Please don't misunderstand me. I wish I could sound like him. It doesn't come out. And another thing is the way I orchestrate. I orchestrate as I go, as I'm writing. That's how I was trained. And that's what I do um, quickly. Uh, it was interesting. I was working with Howard Shore at the Aspen uh, Music Festival uh, way back when I was in um, school. He said, never let anyone orchestrate your music. You should at least orchestrate a lot of it yourself. He orchestrates everything. Just like Jerry, he takes the music from the yellow paper and puts it on the white paper. I mean, it's very clear. And he says that because when an orchestrator comes in, they're putting their voice on your notes. And then it's not you. And you can go to the date and you're going to hear the music and you'll be like, I didn't write this. Like, where did this come from? So I make it a point to orchestrate all my own. And I'm pretty quick at that. So it's a matter of just taking, having somebody take my electronic scores and putting them in paper is essentially, and I pride myself on that. So I think that's, those are the two elements of composition that I think define me and define my, my musical voice. You started short films. How did you get your first feature? Um, I just remember somebody um, hearing about me. I will say I've had great luck with my website and I've also had luck on the, with my music on the concert stage. And I think people are curious. And when they go to the website, they see it's, I have a film music page and I have a concert music page. I have as many recordings and videos as I can of performances and music and scores as well. And I think people just get curious because I know, I don't think many film composers have an active concert career. And so I'm kind of doing both things at once. So I'm finishing this up and right now, and then I have another film uh, that I'll start in December once my commission is done. So I'm always back and forth. And so I think that's a little bit unusual because usually it's focus on one or focus on the other. And I try to keep it pretty even. Maybe that means I don't work as much here and I don't work as much there. I don't know. I know one thing that we had talked about was the fact that um, I know a lot of up and coming composers have worked for more established composers. Unfortunately, I don't know if that's because I came to composition late because I'm classically trained and I don't build beats and I don't do that kind of thing. I've never had a mentor in that respect. Um, I've had people, I've had two people in my life say, do this, 
or think about doing that, but that was it. I've been on my own the entire time. So maybe if I think having a mentor, and I think it's like anything else in life, in the arts, actors and playwrights, artists, fine artists, painters, composers and singers and soloists like a piano, concert pianist or a violinist or whatever, you can hear somebody, but you're like, okay, well, the music's great, but how long did it take? And were they on time? And how did the scores look? And we paid X amount for this painting. Did they give us what they said they were going to do? Or is it something totally different, right? There are all these things. So you actually need to be, in my opinion, vetted. And so when you have a mentor that says, yes, so-and-so has worked for me. They're very nice. They do this on time. They did this and this. And I think they are ready for X. Um, That means something because of some, you know, like if I'm trying to hustle for work and I don't have anybody making that kind of saying, yes, she can do it. It makes life really hard, which is so interesting when I won the commission on the classical side, how that opened a lot of doors because I was vetted. I haven't changed. I mean, I'm the same composer that I was two minutes ago and now all of a sudden it's okay. It's very, I find it interesting and frustrating at the same time. So at this point to have a mentor, I was like, what does mentorship mean? I'm not starting from the beginning. I have a voice. I have a particular thing, but maybe, maybe mentorship for me is, uh, would be more on the lines of advice, being able to bounce ideas off of someone that kind of thing. So I don't, maybe mentor is the wrong word. I'm not sure, but I think that the mentorship happens a lot more for the guys than it does for the girls. I think it's, it's happening now because it's this bro kind of community still. And I think that they're so used to helping each other when it comes to the girls. Like I said, it's totally changing, but it's not quite as forthcoming I found. So, um, For me, I found that's been my biggest obstacle is finding other composers to say, yes, she's, you know, to kind of vet. And And that in turn makes your career take a little longer.
now one of the scores you have a lot of acclaim for was the the bad seed in 2018 which was, was directed by rob lowe and i had this quote from john burlingame saying he's one of the most remarkable tv movie scores of the past season how did you get to score rob lowe's film the bad seed um so when you don't have a mentor and you're just in big lonely big bad hollywood on your own um one cold calls or at least i do and i'll admit it i'm not there's no shame in that i'm i hustle as much as i can and i had done some work for um the producer mark wolper and i literally emailed him once every three or four months hey here i am you have anything for me I'd love to work for, for you again, blah, blah. And literally I did that. So if this is my trajectory and this is his, sooner or later, they're gonna meet. So my email happened to hit at the time when they were in pre-production in this movie. And I got an email out of the blue, at least I thought it was out of the blue that said, hi, I do have something for you. I think it's right up your alley. It's a horror film, it's the bad seed. I grew up watching that as a kid and I know the story and I'm really excited. And he said, well, come up with a demo for us. That would be great. And I said, okay. And I'm fretting like, what do I do? What should I write? And maybe they want this or that. And my husband finally looked at me. He's like, why don't you ask? I was like, oh, good idea. So I reached back out again and I said, you know, Mark, I think it was a couple of days later, you know, I'm in the process of this, but I was hoping that I could pick your brain about what you wanted. Stupid thing. Maybe if I had somebody tell you, always ask. Um, and he's like, well, maybe you could maybe want to talk to the director. And I thought, that's weird. I think the director is. And then I hear, hello, this is Rob Lowe. <laughs> oh my God. I almost ah, Rob Lowe. And so he was very specific about what he wanted. He said he wanted the shining meets out of Africa. That's what he wanted. So he wanted something that had a beautiful tune and that was lush, but still at the same time, dark and ominous. So that's kind of right up my alley. So it was wonderful. I wrote that, I don't know, pretty quick, six weeks. We, and we recorded a 30 piece at Warner Brothers. So the score just sounds really beautiful.
Now, your music does sound at times melodic and also experimental, but do you prefer working with an orchestra or the electronic or a mix of both even? Right. Um, I usually write both. Even in my concert music, I usually have electronics. I wrote a piece called 1001, um, and that is a piece for electronics and orchestra. And so that is played, the electronics is played in the hall while the orchestra is performing. I think it's quite effective. I love to do both, but if you had to make me choose, it would be orchestra. I mean, that's my, I know that the best. You're going to talk about, you know, an ensemble and a kind of a sound. I feel that's my strong suit and I love to write for that genre. Try to look up your music on iTunes. I couldn't find anything at the moment. Hopefully that's going to change. Would you like in the time to have your music released so more people will find your work and enjoy it? Right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because this score, Ivory Wave, my previous scores have not been released simply because of the fact that um, they weren't allowed by the production company to be released. So I'm kind of stuck. But Ivory Wave, I actually had the um, permission to create an EP of the score. And that is going to be released um, on the 12th of November. And for people who pre-save or who have the opportunity to um, download it on Bandcamp or pre-save it on um, iTunes, as a uh, thank you, I'm giving away the PDF of the score. He's interested in seeing a kind of interesting notation, box notation, etc. It's there and you can follow along with it as you listen. I've actually used things under the moniker Anasia. And so I have music out there with that, but nothing as Liana Premiani. So I'm really excited and really proud that this is my first one, especially having Lyris and having Damon and ha- being at Fox. 
I'm so proud of it. Which composers in the film music world do you most admire? And which has influenced your music over the years? I'm a fan of John Luther Adams. He won something called a Pulitzer Prize. Spectacular. I'm a fan of Stephen Stuckey, who's an American composer. He's done a lot of work in London. He has since deceased. Um, Christopher Rouse, who I just love his music. So that's as far on the classical side. I'll say on the film side, probably Jerry, just because I think just the... I love to paint with an orchestra and he does. And every time I listen to something that he has done or I have a score from Omni publishers, I uh, love those guys. I learned so much. So I'll say far as uh, living composers, um, I love Hans Zimmer. The music does not come out of me like that as much as I try, but I certainly, he has such craft and I certainly admire that for sure. And then there's an Italian who lives in London. Dario Marianelli. Oh, done a and few. you know, he did my favorite. Okay, so my favorite score of his and almost any score is the um, Mr. Darcy with Kira Knightley. Yes, that score. I don't know if you've heard it. O-M-G. That score is breathtaking. It just, it sounds like the 11th Beethoven symphony or the sixth piano concerto i'm telling you it is unbelievable that score and i i can't and i watch it over and over and every time i hear something a little bit different and just the way he uses the piano and that tune and oh and mr darcy when he comes walking down with the sun behind him at the end of the movie my god i cry every time it's so romantic it is beautiful i love him aside from pride and prejudice do you have any other favorite film schools I think No Time to Die is a new favorite. It's spectacular. I love Alien. I love Poltergeist. I love, I love The Matrix. I think Don Davis is a genius, especially the first one. I am telling you, he is amazing. I love his music. Um, I've never met him, um, but um, I, I think he's a real genius and I, and that score does not sound dated or old to me at all. You know, also Close Encounters is probably my favorite John Williams score. I think it's spectacular. The tuba and the oboe, oh, the, you know, and the thing, oh, amazing. Um, yeah, so I would say that for me, that is, um, those are my favorites. Anything you're working on at the moment coming up on the pipeline in the near future? Um, I am uh, going to start um, uh, a Brazilian project in um, December. And then I have a, my big commission, which is happening at the end of February. And then I'm working with a pianist, Lubomar Milnik. He's really quite spectacular. He's come up with this kind of new technique called continuous music. It's really quite remarkable. I'm working with him on a new album. He had a few placements on Mayor of Easttown. So I know if you heard his music, you would recognize it. So we're starting to work together, and I'm really excited about that. Finally, how do you hope your career is going to pan out in the future? Um, just keep working. If I had a choice between TV and features, I would opt for features or like a mini series, like something of Mayor of Easttown would totally be up my alley. Um, those small six or seven episode shows. Those two things is my dream 
to do because just doing a film, getting it done, and then having time for my concert music and then going back instead of having a television show where it just keeps going and going and going and going. I know that's kind of the gold standard for a lot of composers, but for me, I really want to stick with features and shorter television projects. That is my dream. And like I said, if there's an opportunity, my dream would be to do to write The Exorcist if I ever had that um, opportunity. I, I would love that. And you know, like you watch it now and you're like, and apparently who, who's the little girl? Linda Blair. She went on, I saw an interview with her and she's like, we all thought it was stupid. Like people were shaking the bed and I was doing this and that. She's like, I, she's like, I don't know why people are so upset. It was just such a silly thing. Like we didn't know, like my mom did, we nobody realized what a thing it would be. And you look at it now and look, you can tell it's iconic and just the way that they did it and think the way he used music is very effective. And it, but you just look at it and it's like time for refresh time. And I do hope that dream, that dream project comes to fruition for you. Liana Piamani, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining us on Talking Soundtracks. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time. I'm so appreciative. I do hope you enjoyed our interview with award-winning composer-conductor Leonana Primiani on Talking Soundtracks for the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast Network. And if you want to know what music was played on today's show, please go to the music playlist on the Cinematic Sound Radio webpage at cinematicsound.net. And I must also thank Derek Cena for writing the Talking Soundtracks theme music. i leave you with more music from Ivy Wave, which was released digitally on Bandcamp and all other digital platforms on the 12th of November. My thanks again to Liana Primiani for joining us on Talking Star Trek today, and until we meet again, for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to TeePublic to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>